So I want you to think about the answer to a question, and the question is, what constitutes the good life? What constitutes the good life? I'm wearing a tie this morning in honor of Father's Day. I heard, I heard uh, that, that Bill Cosby said that, that being a father means being able to really believe that, that soap on the rope is like the best gift. In, in, in the part of the country I came from, it wasn't soap on the rope, it was the tie, right? I mean, I think I gave my dad a tie every single Father's Day for years. I, what, what do people do out west where you don't wear ties? What do you, maybe, maybe that's where soap on, on a rope comes from. I, I, I don't know. Anyway. If you pay attention to the Father's Day ads, the answer to the question, what's the good life, is, uh, what, beer, sports on TV, uh, a perfect lawn, meat on the grill, maybe throw in a boat or a round of golf if you're into that. In other words, the good life is endless weekend. Now, this idea of the good life, uh, the idea was actually coined by Aristotle. Aristotle thought the good life was ultimate happiness, the, the, the life that you would live if only you could live it. There's, a, there's an organization called the Good Life Project, And uh, a a guy named Jonathan Fields directs that project, the Good Life Project. And according to Jonathan Fields, the good life is living authentically. Whatever that is for you, but but, but living it genuinely, authentically. If you really want to know what people think the good life is, I think the place to go is a funeral. All you have to do is go to a funeral, and at a funeral, people will tell you what they think the good life is, because you know how funerals work. At a funeral, people stand up, and, and they share, and they, they almost always say, you know, he or she, the, the departed, they had a good life. They had a good life. And then they go on, and they kind of define what that good life was, surrounded by friends and family, good health, financially secure, And generally, you know, they had a passion for something, something that really mattered to them. I think for most Americans, at least middle Americans, that's the good life. That's the package. Friends and family, financially secure, decent health, and something that really matters to you, that, that you could really throw yourself into. Of course, however you define it, the real question is, how do you get it? How do you achieve the good life? Is it dumb luck? Is it hard work? That's kind of what Christiane was sharing with us earlier, that, that she was pursuing. Really, really hard work, being good, working hard. Is it, is it relentless competition? This summer, we're looking at the book of Proverbs. book of Proverbs is really a book that is all about the good life. It's all about the art of living well in God's world. And in our passage this morning, the book of Proverbs, Solomon actually tells us how to achieve the good life. 
That's what chapters 2 to 4 are all about, how to achieve the good life. But more than how to achieve it, actually, Solomon takes the time to tell us what the good life is. Essentially, what what he tells us is that to achieve the good life, we're going to need wisdom. And that same wisdom we need is going to tell us what it is that we're trying to achieve. Wisdom tells us what the good life really is all about. So so turn with me to Proverbs chapter 2. Proverbs chapter 2. If you're, if you're using one of the Bibles we've provided in the pews, Proverbs 2 is found on page 986. 986. Proverbs chapter 2. Now, we're going to be looking at chapters 2, 3, and 4. I'm not going to have time to read all of those chapters, even, even though I would like to. Uh, so I'm going to read, right here at the start, I'm going to read just a selection from the beginning of each of those chapters. So let's start in Proverbs chapter 2, verse 1. Proverbs 2, verse 1. My son, if you accept my words and store up my commands within you, turning your ear to wisdom and applying your heart to understanding, and if you call out for insight and cry aloud for understanding, and if you look for it as for silver and search for it as for hidden treasure, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom, and from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He holds victory in store for the upright. He is a shield to those whose walk is blameless, for he guards the course of the just and protects the way of his faithful ones. All right, now flip over to uh, chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 1. My son, do not forget my teaching, but keep my commands in your heart. For they will prolong your life many years and bring you prosperity. Let love and faithfulness never leave you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Then you will win favor and a good name in the sight of God and man. Now turn to chapter 4, verse 1. Listen, my sons, to a father's instruction. Pay attention and gain understanding. I give you sound learning, so do not forsake my teaching. When I was a boy in my father's house, still tender and an only child of my mother, he taught me and said, lay hold of my words with all your heart. Keep my commands and you will live. All right, that's the opening to each of the chapters. You'll remember if you were, if you were here last week, uh, the, the father... Solomon, in the voice of a father, has warned his son about the dangers that lie ahead, this curving, twisty road that that, that lies ahead, And and he lays out these warning signs for him. But having laid out the warnings now in chapters two to four, really what the father wants to do is he wants to paint a picture, he wants to paint a vision of the good life that wisdom brings and how his son can actually achieve that life. And what we see in these three chapters is that wisdom brings first, in chapter 2, security for those who seek it. Wisdom brings security for those who seek it. And then, and then in chapter 3, what we see is that wisdom brings prosperity for those who trust it. Prosperity for those who trust it. And then we get to chapter 4, and we see that wisdom brings life, life for those who persevere in it. What is the good life? The the good life is a a secure life. 
It's a prosperous life. It's, it's an abundant life. And it comes to those who pursue wisdom. As we consider this good life that wisdom brings, what I want you to consider is, is the life that I'm about to describe, is this the life that you desire? Is this this the life that you're pursuing? What would it look like for you to pursue such a life? And since it's Father's Day, let let me say especially to dads. Dads, is the life that I'm about to describe, is this the life that you're modeling for your children? What good life are you pursuing in front of your kids? What good life are you training them to pursue based on your model? All right. So first, chapter 2, wisdom brings security to those who seek it. As we already saw, I read those those first eight verses, as as we've already seen, wisdom is once again defined as the fear of the Lord. You see that in verse 6. We we saw that right at the beginning of Proverbs, that the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. But here in verse 6, he actually parallels that idea of fear of the Lord with, with another idea, the knowledge of God. So, so the fear of the Lord and, and the knowledge of God, and frankly, in those two phrases, what we have are the two poles of a life that is rightly oriented toward God. On the one hand, the fear of the Lord, I mean, a knowledge of God as our creator and, and, and as our judge, uh, uh, an understanding of the Lord that actually leaves us flat on our faces before Him in reverent fear. But, but on the other hand, this, this other pole a knowledge of God. The, the, the word actually is the same word that, that would be used to describe the, the knowledge that a, a husband has of his wife or wife of, of her husband. It is, it is an intimate knowing. We, we know that God is our, our Father, our Savior. And so we approach Him with, with affection and with confidence. Two poles, both of them very real, both of them controlling. Our our life is is like an oval, right, drawn around those two controlling poles. This is what it means to be rightly oriented towards God. This is what wisdom is all about. And chapter 2 tells us that wisdom like that brings security. That's really the point of chapter 2. Look, look again with me there at verse 7. He, that is God, holds victory in store for the upright. He's a shield to those whose walk is blameless. He guards the course of the just and protects the way of his faithful ones. Solomon is piling up the words there for, for the safety and the security that God gives to his own children, to his own people. Victory, a shield, guarding, protecting. This is, this is actually military language. And, and frankly, you can't have a better secret weapon than God, right, on your side. Only it's not quite like that as the chapter goes on to show. God, God doesn't protect us magically. It's not like, you know, that, that, that TV show that I haven't seen yet called Under the Dome. It's not like he puts this, this magical, like, deflector bubble around our lives so that, that no harm can get through. Uh, it, it's not like Difficult problems never come into our lives. It's not like difficult people never come into our lives. No, it's, it's rather that he protects us 
as we internalize wisdom, as wisdom actually enters into us. Look at verse 9. He's just said that God protects us. Verse 9, then you will understand what is right and just and fair, every good path, for wisdom will enter your heart and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. Discretion will protect you and understanding will guard you. Here's how wisdom brings security into our lives. Wisdom enters into our lives. The wisdom, the fear of the Lord, the knowledge of God, this enters into our lives and it actually changes our tastes, right? It will be be pleasant to our soul. It It will taste good to us. You remember when you were a kid and you hated broccoli? But there, there was, there was a, a moment in time for most of us, probably not all of us, when we discovered, you know, broccoli's actually not so bad, right? I, I kind of like broccoli. Our, our taste had changed as we grew up. I mean, when I, when I was a kid, maybe this, maybe this will strike, especially dads, I think you'll get this. And when I was a kid, I could, I could skip the, the main course and just go straight to dessert. But these days man, I want the steak. And could we have steak for dessert? That would be fantastic, right? Tastes change. This is what wisdom does. Wisdom enters into us, and it actually changes our tastes. So that when when the enticements of evil, when the enticements of folly come along, the more we have internalized wisdom, Man, the, the, the less attractive they seem, those enticements. Because, because actually my taste is now for something else. My taste is for the good rather than for the evil, for the folly. Now, the rest of the chapter lays out really two different sources of temptation. It, it picks up there in verse 12. You get the ways of wicked men in verses 12 to 15. And you get the allure of the wayward woman in verses 16 to 19. Now, that, that wicked man, the language is really all about, about commerce. Uh, he's a con man. He's trying to cheat you of your money. The, the, the wayward woman, it's really all about sexual temptation. But what I want you to understand is that, that Proverbs doesn't think that, that, that women are the problem when it comes to sexuality and, and men are just all, all about greed. These are archetypes. Right? These, are, these are characters that are meant to personify uh, the, these two great categories of folly, easy money and easy sex. And the book of Proverbs understands that both of those follies, man, those are, those are equal opportunity temptations for both genders, right? But, but whether it's greed or lust, chapter 2 points out that wisdom protects us from those enticements. It protects us from that, from that moral, immoral candy because it's inclined our heart to go a different way. It's, it's changed our tastes. It, it's moved our heart to now want to walk down a different path, not the path of the wicked man or, or the wayward woman, but the path of the righteous. You see, we all move towards what attracts us. 
We, we're, like, we're like magnets, right? We, we are creatures of attraction, and we move towards what attracts us. We do what we do because we want what we want, because we like what we like. So if, if infidelity and, and corruption, if, if easy money and easy sex is what we like, well, that's, that's the path we're going to go. That, that's the direction we're going to move. But if, as it says there in verse 9, if what is right and just and fair is what gives us pleasure, well, then that's the path we're going to take. And the path we choose matters. Solomon describes the, the path of the wicked. It's, it's, a, it's a crooked path. It's a, it's a dark path. And of course, that doesn't really mean much to us because we live in the world of electric light. We, we live in the world of the 24-7 day. That's not the world that Solomon lived in. That's not the world that these original readers knew about. They knew about a world that when it was dark, I mean, it was dark. Some of you all who camp know what that's like. You go out into eastern Oregon and you camp and it gets dark. And if the batteries run out in your flashlight or you run out of propane fuel, man, it's just, you're just out of luck because it's dark. That's the world they lived in. And a crooked path? In deep darkness, that's not, that's not a fun place, right? That's, that's dangerous. You're likely to miss the way altogether. You're likely to end up in deep trouble. In fact, he goes on to say, it's a path that leads down to death. Verse 18, her house leads down to death and her paths to the spirits of the dead, none who go to her return or attain the paths of life. Friends, that's not just an an image of of, of physical death. That's an image of God's ultimate and final judgment for a life of folly. But but in contrast, you get the paths of the righteous, the, the path that wisdom leads us on. And that path is a straight path. It's not a crooked path. And it's a path that leads to blessing. That's really the point of verses 20 to 22, right there at the end of the chapter. Thus you will walk in the ways of good men and keep to the paths of the righteous, for the upright will live in the land and the blameless will remain in it. The wise who are on this straight path remain in the land. What's, so, what's the big deal about the land? The land is, the, is the, the physical, temporal, earthly blessing that God had given to the Israelites. The the land stands for for God's presence with them, for his goodness towards them, for all the good gifts that he had given them. And we don't live in Palestine. That's that's not the promise that's given to us. we, We have something even better, right? We have the very presence of God in our lives through the Holy Spirit indwelling us. The wise remain in the presence of God, not cut off, but in the place of his blessing. Friends, here's the ultimate security that wisdom brings. Not not just safety from falling off the path into a ditch, not just safety from what that is supposed to be a picture of, but falling into wickedness that brings all sorts of trouble into your life while you're still alive. No, but safety from falling under God's final judgment after this life is over. This is the security that 
that wisdom brings. We spend so much time and energy in our lives trying to make sure we're safe and secure, right? We, we buy homes in the right neighborhood. We put alarm systems on our cars and on our houses. We're very careful about where we walk and where we go. We're careful about what we eat. We are constantly trying to, to, to manage and control our safety and our security physically. And, and yet, the events of this last week have shown us if we needed yet another reminder of how little we are actually able to control our physical safety. Nobody showed up at Reynolds High School this week thinking there was going to be a shooting. We are not in control. And it, 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 our, our sense of safety, our sense of security is, is just moments away from being shattered. How much more important then to secure not our physical safety, but our spiritual safety, our safety from being cut off from God and His blessing. And yet I fear for some of us how how little attention we ever give to that. We give a lot of attention to our worldly safety, our physical safety, our financial security. But what about our spiritual security? Jesus said, what good is it to gain the whole world and lose your soul? So dads, what sort of security do your kids observe you pursuing? As they they watch you spend your time, as they are aware of what you're worried about, as they are very aware of the kinds of things that you give a lot of attention to, controlling and having just so. What are you teaching them? Are you teaching them to trust in the Lord, but through your lives effectively teaching them that security is found in having enough money? That security is found in in being able to really control circumstances and the people and the situations around you? Or are you teaching your children the wisdom that says security is found in fearing and knowing the Lord. Wisdom brings a security that no rogue gunman can ever touch, a security that cannot be shaken. But as chapter 2 makes very clear, you have to want it. It, it, You have to search for it. You have to seek it. It's, It's not automatic that this kind of wisdom comes to us. Chapter 2 begins, as as you heard me read, with this series of if statements. If you clamor and call out for wisdom, if you search for it as hidden treasure, then you will find it, and the security that it brings will come, but it doesn't come automatic. This kind of wisdom, and this doesn't come to the dilettante. This doesn't come to the, the casual weekend treasure hunter. You know, you've seen them on the beach. Or out, out, out on, a, on a field after, a, after a, a big event, music event. You know, they've got, their, they've got their metal detector, and they're just sort of casually out there looking for stuff. That's not, kind of, that's not the kind of searching, the, the kind of calling out for, the kind of clamoring that, that Solomon's talking about here. No, no th- this is more like a parent on a crowded beach who's lost his toddler. You know what you start doing then? I do, because it's happened to me. 
you start shouting. You start screaming. You start running up and down that beach. You start talking to strangers and you don't care what they think of you because you've lost your child, your treasure. And that's a scary beach ocean out there. And there's scary people there. And you, even as you're screaming and searching and running and shouting, hollering, you're also listening. You're like every fiber of your being is straining, is listening for the sound of your lost child's voice. And how you do that simultaneously, I'm not sure. I just know you do it. You're screaming and you're listening because you have to find him. That's what Solomon's talking about here because that's what's at stake. Life itself is at stake. Friends, what are you clamoring for? What are you searching for this morning? What what has gripped you and riveted your attention? We're all searching for something. The good life depends upon how you answer this question, what are you searching for? There is a path that leads to life, and there is a path of death. And friend, you need to be careful this morning because you might find what you're looking for. The good life is the secure life that wisdom brings. But the good life is not just secure, it is also prosperous. So turn over to to chapter 3. Wisdom brings prosperity to those who trust it. Wisdom brings prosperity to those who trust it. Let's just look again at those first two verses of chapter 3. My son, do not forget my teaching, but keep my commands in your heart for they will prolong your life many years and bring you prosperity. Long life and prosperity. Apparently, Solomon was a fan of Star Trek, right? This is the Vulcan greeting, live long and prosper. Only this isn't science fiction. Or is it? Is it? I think sometimes we might think of it that way. Solomon paints a picture here of a prosperous life in this chapter. In verses 7 and 8, he promises health. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and shun evil. This will bring health to your body and nourishment to your bones. And then in verses 9 and 10, he promises wealth. Honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your crops. Then your barns will be filled to overflowing and your vats will brim over with new wine. And, and, And then he repeats himself in verses 16 to 18. Speaking of wisdom, long life is in her right hand. In her left hand are riches and honor. Her ways are pleasant ways and all her paths are peace. She's a tree of life to those who embrace her. Those who lay hold of her will be blessed. And all of this comes to the wise man or woman who trusts in God. Wisdom brings prosperity to those who trust in it. Isn't that the point of the probably the only two verses that most of us have ever memorized out of the book of Proverbs, right here in this chapter, Proverbs 3, verses 5 and 6. Why don't we just say it all out loud together, right? Trust in the Lord with... There it is. We we know that verse. This verse is really the motto of the prosperity gospel movement, the health and wealth gospel. It really finds its home right here 
in Proverbs chapter 3. If you have enough faith, if you'll just trust in God, God will bless you. He'll make you rich. He'll make you well. And, of course, the main way you show that you're trusting in God, that you have faith, is by giving money to the health and wealth preacher. Seed money that honors the Lord with your wealth. And so really kind of obligates God now to honor you with riches and with good health. That may be a good way to make the preacher prosperous. I'm not asking for that. It might be a good way to make the preacher prosperous. It's really a good way to burn the people out and make them cynical. And it's not at all what Proverbs chapter 3 is talking about. To begin with, we need to remember that Proverbs is giving us general truths about the way life ordinarily works. It's not giving us specific promises. So, so generally speaking, wisdom leads to longer life and wealth for the same reason that wickedness and folly leads to a shorter life and poverty. The laws of, of, of sort of natural moral consequences are at work in the universe, and they work most of the time. But I think equally important here is to recognize what Proverbs 3 says trusting in the Lord looks like. Look at verse 27. We're going to go to the end of the chapter. Look at verse 27. Do not withhold good from those who deserve it when it is in your power to act. Do not say to your neighbor, come back later, I'll give it tomorrow, when you now have it with you. Do not plot harm against your neighbor who lives trustfully near you. Do not accuse a man for no reason when he's done you no harm. Do not envy a violent man or choose any of his ways. For the Lord detests a perverse man, but takes the upright into his confidence. According to Proverbs chapter 3, it turns out that trusting in the Lord's wisdom rather than in your own wisdom looks a lot like loving your neighbor rather than looking out for number one. And now we understand why it's an issue of trust. I'm not so sure God's going to take care of me. And so I have to look out for number one. Verse 27 pictures a scene in, in which your neighbor has a need and you have the ability to meet it, whatever that need is. It's not really specific. It could be a material need like money. It could be practical need like, like help of some kind. It could even be a, a relational or an emotional need. And, and you have the ability to, to meet the need, but it's, it's just not really convenient at the moment to do so. You know, you're, you're, you're busy. You, you, you've got pressing matters. The, the kids need to get to, to, to their, their music lessons, and, and groceries need to be bought, and, and the, the lawn needs to be mowed and, and trimmed, and, and oh yeah, I've got oh, this work hanging over me that I didn't get done, and I had to bring it home this weekend, and there's just so much pressing on me right now. Could you just come back later? Actually, usually we don't say, can you come back later? We try to avoid the eye contact in the first place, and we never even let it get to the ask, because we don't like to be put in the position of feeling bad 
when we say no because it wasn't convenient to help at that moment. It's not that you don't care. It's that you don't trust God to take care of you. And so you need to take care of yourself first, and then you'll get around to it. Verse 29 considers the temptation to actually take advantage of your unsuspecting neighbor. And that could be a small thing, like, you know, not correcting the cashier when they give you too much change. Figure, well, it's their mistake, my benefit. How many, how many, you don't have to raise your hand, but how many of us have done that? Well, I was, I was a cashier once, right? Uh, I had a part-time job as a cashier. And you know what happens to the cashier when the till is short at the end of the day? Happens too many times you lose your job. It could be a larger thing. That's a small thing. It could be a much larger thing. It could could be the kind of larger social and political actions that we take collectively to advance and protect our middle-class tribe at the expense of the undeserving poor. If they were deserving, they wouldn't be in that position. And there may be more ways than we're ready to realize that we actually plot, that we actually take advantage of our unsuspecting neighbor. Wisdom rebukes us in that. Wisdom rebukes our lack of love. It teaches us to trust the Lord. The Lord will take care of you. Trust the Lord. And so give yourself away loving your neighbor. In ancient Israel, the neighbor was your fellow Israelite. But as Jesus taught us in Luke chapter 10, our neighbor is anyone in need. We have it in our power to help. So I'd really encourage you to come back out tomorrow night as uh, Timothy Peterson talks to us about knowing our city and really beginning to know who are our neighbors in our neighborhoods. I think you will be challenged as well as fascinated by what Portland actually really looks like, maybe what your neighborhood looks like. When we do this, when we trust God, rather than give ourselves to take care of ourselves, when we trust God and show it by loving our neighbors, what happens is a prosperous life. That's what results here in chapter 3, a prosperous life. Not fabulous wealth, not not a guarantee that you won't get cancer. After all, right there in the middle of the chapter, verse 11, Solomon warns that the Lord will discipline us. And And we shouldn't view hardship that he brings into our life as evidence that he doesn't love us. But as well as hardship, as well as discipline, he will bring blessing. Look back at at verse 3 there. Let love and faithfulness never leave you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Then you will win favor and a good name in the sight of God and man. Friends, here is true prosperity. Favor and a good name in the sight of God and man. Now, Now look at verse 33, the end of the chapter. The Lord's curse is on the house of the wicked, but he blesses the home of the righteous. He mocks proud mockers, but gives grace to the humble. The wise inherit honor, but fools he holds up to shame. Friends, God will not be mocked. He will judge. It's why Jesus said that on the last day, the first will be last, and the last will be first. 
There will be a day of reckoning. But what Proverbs promises us, if it promises us anything here, is that even in this life, before that final day of reckoning, the one who trusts in the Lord's way, the one, the one who loves his neighbor, will begin to know a wealth and a prosperity in this life that is beyond imagining. What do I mean by that? I mean, it's all about favor and a good name in the sight of God and man. I watched this work out in my own family. My, uh, my grandfather died a very wealthy man. He was a physician, and he was, unlike most physicians, he was actually really good with his money. And so he died a very wealthy man. My second son, Christian, is named after my grandfather, Henry S. Christian. But the wealth that was so evident in my grandfather's life, at the end of his life, wasn't his money. It was the fact that he was held in honor by his community. I remember we flew back from England for my granddad's funeral, and it was in a church a bit larger than this, seated about a 1,000. It was packed. And there were people standing in the aisles. And do you know why they were there? They were there because my grandfather was a follower of Jesus Christ, and he understood that he was not here to love himself. He was here as a follower of Jesus Christ to love others. And so what my granddad did with his money was he sent his kids to college, and he sent about a dozen other kids to college too. They had no relation to him. What my granddad did with his money was he, he loved to uh, grow flowers, and, and the flower he loved the most was orchids. And so he built a bunch of orchid greenhouses in his backyard. And orchids are not inexpensive plants, and they're not very cheap to maintain. But whenever anybody ended up in a hospital, or he heard about any kid in, in his church who was getting ready to go on a prom, or some other big dance back when you did corsages, I don't know that you do that anymore. He and my grandmom would take all of their best orchids and deliver them to the hospital or make just for free these beautiful corsages for, for these kids in the church. My granddad was always the first one at the hospital. And he used his surgeon's rights to sit with the person that was getting ready to go into surgery and then follow them on in, something that I, even as a pastor, can't do. My granddad was a Christian. I know it. And people showed up at his funeral to honor him. As they had honored him in life, they honored him in death. Because he did not try to take care of himself. As, as the money began to roll in, he, he didn't move to a bigger house. He and my grandmom continued to live in the very modest two-bedroom home that they bought right before the war, even as all of his other doctor friends lived in bigger and kept trading up. Right, friends, this, this is just one man. He's a man that means much to me. You don't know him. If you're a Christian, you'll meet him someday. 
But he showed me what true wealth looked like. He showed me what a prosperous life looked like. It looked like a life given away for others. A couple of years ago, another member of my own family died as wealthier, maybe even wealthier than my grandfather, also a physician. I loved him dearly. I went to that funeral too. And you know who was at that funeral? A handful of family and friends, a few colleagues that had worked with him over the years, didn't even fill up the small chapel where it was held. This other family member of mine was not a follower of Jesus. He made a lot of money, and he took care of himself. He took care of his kids. He he took care of extended family members like me. But that's, of course, what you're supposed to do. And it did not earn honor. It did not display anything that the world doesn't already know. That, of course, you look out for number one. Because nobody else is going to take care of you. Friends, where do we find this life that gets better? This this, this, this prosperous life. We find it in Jesus Christ. So I, I wonder, dads, what is the prosperity that you are ambitious for this morning? The prosperity that you're pursuing is the prosperity that your kids will pursue. What are you rich in? Ultimately, the good life is not just secure and prosperous. Ultimately, the good life is life itself, life at its fullest, life as God intended us to live it. Let's look at chapter 4, and this is where we're going to close. Wisdom. Wisdom brings life, life to the full to those who persevere in it. I think I thought about my granddad because of of what Solomon does here in chapter 4. The father remembers what his father, what granddad said to him. And what granddad said is that if you hold on to life, if you persevere in it, you will really live. Verse 4, lay hold of my words with all your heart. Keep my commands and you will live. Verse 10, Listen, my son, accept what I say, and the years of your life will be many. Verse 13, hold on to instruction. Do not let it go. Guard it well, for it is your life. Verses 22 and 23, for they are life to those who find them and health to a man's whole body. Above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. Five times in this chapter, the result of wisdom is life, and not just bare existence, no, but, but, but life that is, that is abundant, that's, that's filled with splendor, that's, that's full of joy. Once again, he, he pictures it as, as this life that is a straight path, no stumbling, no fear of harm, a clear sense of direction and purpose. And what's most amazing is that the longer you live this life, the longer you live in this wisdom, the better it gets. 
Look at verse 18. The path of the righteous is like the first gleam of dawn, shining ever brighter to the full light of day. Ever brighter the longer you walk on it. In contrast, the way of wickedness, the way of folly, which starts off promising so much, it just gets worse and worse. Look at verse 19. But the way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They don't even know what makes them stumble. Where do we find this life? This life that gets better and better the longer we go. We're clearly not talking about physical life. There are many of you here who are older who can attest that actually the longer you live, the harder physical life gets. And we're not talking about physical life here. We're talking about spiritual life, about life with God, and that life is found in Jesus Christ. The New Testament declares that Jesus is the wisdom of God. And friends, that rings true because what did Jesus say? Jesus said that he came that we might have what? Life. This is what wisdom brings. Jesus says, I'm bringing it. I've come that you might have life and that life to the full. John chapter 10, verse 10. The reality is that all of us have chosen the crooked path. All of us on our own have chosen the path that leads to ever-increasing gloom. And, and friends, since we chose that path, we deserve what we get on it. I mean, that's just fair. But not Jesus. Jesus chose the path of trusting God. Jesus chose the path of wisdom because Jesus is wisdom. He is God. And then in that wisdom, Jesus lived out what we see in these three chapters. Jesus decided to love others rather than himself. Jesus did not withhold what it was in his power to give right then. And what was it in his power to give? His own life. And he gave it. He gave it, he gave it freely. His life for ours. His death on the cross instead of us to take the punishment that we deserve so that all of us who are willing to to turn from our crooked path and to come to him like that neighbor and admit our need, admit that I need your help. Oh, he gives it. He never once refuses to give the help that it is in his power even now to give. And when he gives it, we get to change paths. Friends, we we get to change from from that crooked path that's leading ever, ever deeper into darkness, into the path of safety from God's judgment, into the path of prosperity in His love, into the path of life itself, life eternal. But here's the thing. We have to persevere in it. We must persevere in it. Many of us made decisions when we were small children for Christ. Many of us know people who made decisions for Jesus when we were small children. But somewhere along the way, mm, we lost the path. We lost sight of the path. It doesn't matter how long you walk on the path of wisdom. Unless you finish the road, you don't reach your destination. Proverbs couldn't be more clear, to forsake wisdom, to swerve to the right or to the left. Whether you do that at the very beginning of the path or whether you do it almost there at the end is to forsake wisdom's destination, which is life itself. Friends, the grand mark of the Christian is perseverance. 
It is true that God preserves us as his children. He does not let us fall away. But it is also true that if you have genuinely tasted the sweetness that is Jesus Christ, if you have known the prosperity of his love, if you have genuinely experienced the fullness of the life that he gives, you won't want to give your heart to anyone else or anything else. You won't want to fall away. Christian, guard your heart. For truly it is the wellspring of life. What's the good life that you're pursuing today? What are people going to say at your funeral? Dads, what are your children going to say at your funeral? Are they going to say that you had a good life like most? Filled with friends and family and a hobby that filled your time. Or are they going to say that you had the good life, secure and prosperous in Jesus Christ, a life that shone brighter and brighter until the day that the light finally went out of your eyes only to wake up to the full light of day that is Jesus Christ in glory? What will they say? at your funeral. Friends, choose the good life. Pursue it. Clamor for it. Choose Christ. Let's pray. Let's just take a moment quietly now in silence. Reflect in our own hearts what we've heard Consider what we need to do, how we need to respond to the choice that's been put in front of us today. Heavenly Father, we know that each of us have been pursuing a life We've been pursuing a vision of the good life and in so many different ways that that vision does not accord with the wisdom that is Jesus Christ. Where we see more clearly now, give us the grace to repent. Father, where, where we have given ourselves wholeheartedly to something else, we pray for the grace to turn and choose Christ, choose the life that is in him. Father, change our tastes, change our desires, change our hearts, that we might be inclined toward Jesus. And that that might grow deeper and stronger every day that you give us on this earth. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.